I often say when I speak to women, we're the women we've been waiting for. Our mothers and our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers have done a beautiful work. And now we stand on their shoulders and we keep this ball moving. They didn't sacrifice for nothing. And (laughs) history is depending on us. History is depending on us to play our role and part. Hello, friends and damn givers. I hope you're doing well. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show where I talk with people who are trying to live a meaningful life people who give a damn. My guest this week is a truly wonderful human. Tiffany Bloom is a crystal clear communicator, a wonderful teacher, and an all-around damn good human. But before I tell you more about Tiffany, this episode is sponsored by me and some of you. We have cultivated a few strategic ad partnerships over the years, but for the most part, I've paid for this podcast to be produced each and every week by myself. And please don't hear that as a complaint. I love you all, I love this podcast, and I'm going to keep making it no matter what. And while I pay for this podcast to be made, some of you support this podcast through our Patreon. Now, I have done a terrible job, absolutely terrible job, inviting you to support the work we do on Patreon. So here it is. I'm going to try to do a little bit better over the next few weeks and months. If you want to help Let's Give a Damn Grow, consider supporting us on Patreon. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can become part of our Let's Give a Damn family. Learn more at patreon.com slash let's give a damn. And even if you can't support us on Patreon, another super important way you can support us is by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps a ton. I honestly hate talking about this part of the business, the money part, because I love doing this and I want you to have it regardless of whether you can support us financially or not. But it does take many thousands of dollars to make this show. So if you can help out, great. If not, I love the hell out of you. Okay, enough about me and enough about money. Let's get to my guest. Tiffany Bloom is first and foremost a friend of mine. We've known each other for years and I truly, truly admire so much about this wonderful human. Tiffany is the co-host of the Why Though podcast with Ashley Abercrombie. She's an international speaker and writer. She's the author of Never Alone, She Dreams, and her brand new book, Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. We spend the majority of our chat today on this latest book. And just a heads up for you, there is quite a bit of Christian talk and overtones in this conversation. The abuse Tiffany experienced came from within the church, so we specifically dive into what calling out abusers and becoming allies with survivors looks like specifically from a church perspective. But we also address these topics and this horrific problem of women not being believed or listened to in broader society as well. Honestly, this conversation is for everyone, though, because it addresses why we silence women who tell the truth, how we silence these women, and how everyone can speak up. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from each and every one of you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Tiffany Bloom. Let's go. Tiffany Bloom, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Uh, So good. It's such a joy to chat with you, Nick. Yes, I am so thrilled. Uh, we used to live near each other. So okay. there's this is not like a stranger situation. No stranger uh, danger here. 
nope, we've eaten meals together. And I, it's been so fun to see your thing grow over the years. Um, and and your, I I appreciate that. Yeah. You're, you have such a, when we lived near each other in the Pacific Northwest, um, I was always very, yeah, very, you, you have this really, uh, kind, but commanding demeanor about yourself. That is a very nice thing to say. I'm a lean into that. I'm a lean into that. Thank you. That is, that is very very kind and commanding. (laughs) Not that, yeah, not that you always have to be kind or commanding, but you, yeah, you're a fantastic leader. And I was able to observe that, you know, for several years when we lived near each other. Um, and it's just been so fun on the sidelines. Now, uh, we were just talking before we started recording, we, we left the Pacific Northwest in 2016. So it's been five years of not seeing that like physically, um, but it's been so fun. So, so glad you're here to talk about your story and your book and all the great things you're doing. So glad you're here. Uh, So pumped to be here. Let's begin with you sharing as much or as little of your story as you want. So, you know, obviously we're talking about your, we'll get into your book, Pray Tell here in a little bit. So lead us from as far back as you want to go to the time when all of this stuff starts happening, right? When you're, you know, things are happening in your life that result in you writing this, uh, you know, pretty powerful book that I think is going to help so many. Um, so go back the people, places, and things. I know you have an interesting background. I'm hoping that you'll, if you don't bring up the things that I want you to, I'll (laughs) pop in and I'll pop in and point them out. But yeah, tell us your story. How did you, who are you? How did you get here? Yeah. So I was abandoned at birth and left on a doorstep and then adopted before my second birthday. I grew up in a rural white area, didn't meet another person of color, Nick, until I was in middle school. So I was surrounded with this dominant culture that had one way of sounding, looking, dressing, acting, and I was the odd man out. So I spent the majority of my youth trying to downplay my identity and not only being brown, but being Indian. So it was really just this interior hate for my existence and where I came from. And that was matched after 9-11. Anyone who appeared Arab Mm. was really free game for a lot of people who lived in fear. And so then the exterior voices matched my interior voice on who I was and my value and my place in the system that I called life. And so it really was a pretty jarring experience. I didn't feel Indian in India and I didn't feel Indian in America. I didn't have those cultural expectations I could meet that others placed on me. And it's interesting you know, Indians in America, they make up the highest income earners. Um, they often mm-hmm. have prestigious jobs. There's a lot associated with their education and their knowledge. And I didn't have any of that. I grew up in a very rural, dare I say, like white trash environment. And so I, it was a it was a really dissonant experience um, to despise my skin and my story and my beginning but also desperately try to belong. And in my understanding, in my definition of belonging was to be accepted and to act like those in dominant culture versus being accepted for who I was in my unique story. And honestly, it was really, um, for me, my faith that helped ground me. If I couldn't feel Indian in India or Indian America, I could feel equal as a child of God. And that Mm -hmm. changed the game. My, My self-esteem, my confidence, everything. It just turned my world upside down. And that really was the onus for my, my, my worldview, my drive, everything changed. So, um, as an adult though, I also grew up in the nineties purity culture movement. And so you take on this, um, fear of being, you know, accepted, not accepted for who you are and your identity and your skin. And then you add into the purity culture that 
if something goes wrong, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. you are responsible to appease the men around you, especially if they've been a gatekeeper and they've let you in the room. You just need to be happy and you need to take the scraps given to you and make the best of it and show up and work harder than anyone else, but act like you're not smarter than anyone else. And so with that, I walked into adult life into a situation where if somebody did say something about my appearance or I once was told, you know, nobody, nobody would listen to you unless you were so beautiful. And, or, Mm. you know, girl, the way you wear your hair like that. And I thought to myself, man, I shouldn't have worn my hair like this today. This Mm. is my fault. The onus was on me to escape abuse of power more than it was on men to behave justly. So this stereotype of being Indian and quote unquote exotic, or even, you know, so many women of color are deemed hypersexual. And then you add in just the desire to please and the desire to be seen and welcomed and recognized in places of power. And that's a pretty toxic mix. So in my situation, I spoke truth to power and lost more than I could have ever dreamed in the process. Mm. And when a man abused his power at a woman's expense, I was seen as disposable and this man was seen as indispensable. So as I grappled with why we silence women, I discovered the societal, financial, professional, and spiritual ramifications of doing so. And Nick, did you know that the abuse of power, specifically at a woman's expense, is the leading indicator of a woman's success? If she yep. is taken advantage of, exploited time, resources, body, um, uh, you know, her, her well-being, her reputation, anything. That that will derail not only her personal family, but obviously her career, her ability to increase in finances. Everything is in jeopardy, not because of anything she did, yep. but because of how a man abused his power. And history has shown us that we are often the scapegoat. We are often the ones with mud on our face. And so that's that's why I decided to write this book, because as I really decided to lean into my own understanding and discover why this happens and why we see something on CNN or Christianity Today or BBC News. And we're like, why didn't anybody say anything? How could this happen for so long? And it's like, well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> because we're all complicit in systems that create monsters. And uh, that's my hope. That's my hope is that we can all kind of unpack how we're complicit in systems and spaces we work and worship and play that are demeaning women half the earth. I've had multiple conversations now around this, these topics that we're going to, that you've already addressed and that we're going to address today with Gretchen Carlson and Rachel Denhollander, Tina Chen, who's the CEO of Time's Up. And they're, every time I have this conversation in particular, it's maybe the most devastating type of conversation that I have, because it's, it's so in my mind, as I'm looking at this problem, I see it as it seems so easy to fix so easy. Like the answer is very, very obvious. Now I could also argue that that's the case for so many of the issues and problems that we're dealing with in the U S whether it's, you know, universal basic income or healthcare or whatever, like the problem, like even eradicating this virus, like the, the answer is so clear. Right. But this one in particular, it's, and I, I think I know why I grew up in a, in an environment, uh, probably not unlike what you did. And I saw the abuses all over the place and that abuse came home. Um, and my father, thank God is a much different person now that he's been freed from the tentacles of fundamentalism and, you know, evangelicalism. But for years, I saw that in my own home. I saw that the, again, some of the things that we're going to talk about today. And so, yeah, I just wanted to point out that like, I keep, I want to keep having amazing folks like you on, because this is a problem that we need to keep 
addressing and talking about, but it just always, it sucks. Like it yeah. sucks because these, again, the, the, the answer is so obvious and we have enough, we have so many examples at this point, right? Where it's like, no, yes, maybe there's one in, I don't know what the statistics are, one in thousands or one in tens of thousands where it's a false accusation, right? And it comes out that it wasn't the case, but 999 times out of a thousand, it's true. And yet every time it happens, we keep questioning it and we keep saying, you know, we keep asking the dumbass questions that have obvious answers and that we know the answer to, but like you said, you're disposable and they're indispensable. Um, Let's go back a little bit in your story. So I want to talk about the faith, how and why, how and why faith uh, evolved in the way that it did. So did you find it on your own? Were you, were you adopted into a a faith filled family or how did that look where you lived? What kind of a denomination were you in and how, even back then, uh, how were they thinking about these types of things? Like how were these things handled? If they were even exposed, how were they handled in that environment? Cause I'm trying to yeah, kind of see the full evolution of, yeah, where you ended up when these things happened. Right. Absolutely. So I was adopted to a family who did attend church, but it was that classic millennial. They went to church all the time, but you never saw life change at home. There was no fruit. <laughs> yeah, it was just a thing. Um, yeah. It was, you know, we, 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 I mean, many of us have that story. Um, it's like, wow, you're really involved. And why we're not seeing any of that life change at home. Um, yeah. But for me, I, it was in, in high school, I got involved in a youth ministry that was truly egalitarian and gave such awesome vision for what your life could be when you saw yourself as valuable and when you treated others as so. And it was absolutely so powerful and impactful and formative in years that mattered. In fact, I remember uh, in high school, there was this Sunday morning where the senior pastor and the youth pastor, and then they wanted a, a student from the youth ministry to preach. And they were going to talk about generations. And they chose mm-hmm. me, this immigrant brown girl. And it was one of those things like, is this performative? And it was truly it was truly an honest situation of this person had been pouring into me in an appropriate manner in such a way. In fact, the majority of mentors in my life have been some strong men who saw my gifting and skill and aptitude and said, I want to, I want to invest all that I have in you. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think that health from those previous mentorship relationships gave me eyes to see unhealth. They gave me eyes to see toxicity in the other male identities in my life as an adult. And so it really was this moment of not only do we believe in you and believe that your existence is worthy and is, you know, you're, you have inherent dignity, but mm-hmm. also we want to empower you to live a life of fullness and of goodness. So I had some good, 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 solid structure, despite the purity movement, despite all of that, I had people who loved me and who cared for me. And that's more than I had in other spaces in my life. And so, and really as my grip on justice tightened. And as my understanding on how women have formed and shaped history, not just biblical history, but modern history as well, it gave me even more of just a metal rod down my back of what can happen when women take their place and operate in the power given to them and take the power if not given to them. And and in in the last 10 years, it really is my understanding of Jesus encounter with women in the New Testament. We love to act like this is an individual gospel. We love to act like he came to help that woman. It's like, actually, he came to burn the system down so everyone could have yep. a whole existence. And he used, his his example was an encounter with the woman at the well or the woman caught in the act of adultery. All of these examples 
point to personal wholeness and they point to societal wholeness. And so it's this both and that I think so many of us struggle with. And especially if you grew up in the evangelical church. And so breaking down this, like, it's a woman's job to do X, Y, or Z, or to be who she needs to be. It's all this empowerment at the lack of changing systems. And we have to be able to see that we can grow as individuals and we can also call out toxic places and spaces and specifically faith spaces when they're doing more harm than good. And they're relying on the subjugation of women. Let's, let's, uh, I was going to jump right into the book, but I think this talking about these next two things will help us jump into the book more fully here in a few minutes. So the two things I want to address are male, the, 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 the prevalence and the prominence of male dominated structures and why we can't figure out that that usually ends up bad, right? So yeah. you grew up in a place where there, there was this value that you just described, right? But that's not most evangelicals. Most evangelicals ex- have experienced, you know, men leading the charge and women doing, I call it the leftovers. Like, you know, w- there's all this bullshit. Like we let, you know, y- y- you can do all the things that we can do except for preach, you know, behind a pulpit, but that's not how it ends up looking. Like it yeah. still very much feels like, We'll do all the big stuff. We'll do all the main stuff and you can do all the rest. So one thing I want to talk about is, yeah, how you see, how you see that, right. Um, and how, how that has affected you to be part of systems over the years where again, there was this, uh, I think you even called it, you know, faux egalitarianism in the book, right. And just to clarify for those that didn't grow up in the church, obviously egalitarian has multiple different, you know, ways of looking at it in this context egalitarianism is, is the opposite of complementarianism. Complementarians believe that only men can preach and teach and do all, you know, it's a very literal, (laughs) right. Yeah. Lead the family. Exactly. Like you're the head, you're the head of the household and everybody else is subservient to you. And a lot of abuse exists in that structure, but then we've got the opposite. We've got egalitarianism where women can lead in all those other ways. Um, And so that's the one thing I want to talk about. But the other thing is maybe let's start there because I don't want to get the two mixed up. One is it, it touches that one, but it's way different. So yeah, let's talk about these, like the who, what, when, where, and why of these like male, this male led male dominated evangelical church that has hurt so many. What's, what's been your experience living in that? I believe it's a misinterpretation of scripture, honestly. 100%. Genesis 1 shows equality. Genesis 3 shows the fall. And then you look at the Old Testament and look at dozens upon dozens of examples of subjugation and silence and slander of women as if that is what should be. But yet we're, we're the reason we even have this in the text is to understand what not to do and how this has caused societal harm. And then you point to the first century and you see how Jesus clearly empowered and emboldened women to lead and teach and preach. And we, we have a clear, clear directive here. Yet we hold a few <laughs> passages of Paul, the household codes, and we put yep. that over the whole life of Jesus, Nick. It's just ridiculous. And then add to that, the first century had that Greco-Roman influence, the culture in, inter, intertwined itself in the church and made a home in the church versus the church shaping the culture. Mm. And so this belief that women were deformed men, women were inherently evil, women were quite literally not capable of telling the truth. You know, history shows that 
women could not testify in the court of law because that there was fear of punishment or they were only there for personal gain. So mm. this propaganda that women were less and that women were truly not capable of living upright moral lives, those stereotypes really took off during the time of the printing press because then that propaganda was disseminated in Christian homes and in places and spaces, both you know sacred and secular culture. And the Reformation did no did no favors for women. Nope. Women before that, you know, uh, one of my favorite examples that uh, Professor Beth Allison Barr gives. She's a medieval uh, medieval women's historian professor at Baylor, and Amazing. she talks about how that's, a, that's that's a mouthful and an it awesome is a, title. It is a mouthful. I know she's she's the goat for sure. But she talks about women had their own breweries. They were living their best life. They had cafes. They ha- they were living. They were leading. But we don't have those narratives. We don't have those stories because when the industrial revolution came in and the printing press and the reformation, we, they couldn't compete with the resources and the, the domineering nature of men. And so they were um, huddled into homes. Oh, now your job is to raise babies. And this is the apex of the Christian life. And it's like, actually the apex of the, of the faith life is to honor God and to live a wild audacious life that is one of sacrifice and one to contribute to human flourishing. But it was demeaned to this small role. And now, I mean, if, if we really want to critique, you, you look at the modern top books for women in the faith space, and it's all like, be a good wife, be a good girl. Mm-hmm. Here's how you can, you know, do all of these things. That's what- Yeah, we can, we can name names, but we won't. No, so we no never. We trouble. love these people. But we're, we're missing yep. the whole point. We're missing that, that women are not to be reduced to one area of life because what that did, it was, it took them out of leadership. It took them out of positions where they could have a valued necessary, not helpful, but necessary voice. And then you take this to modern day and look at the economies that are thriving. You know, if, if women were sitting in places of power, the GDP would double within Mm -hmm. a couple months. Mm -hmm. You know, when women are on board, male CEOs are less risky. I mean, the, the, I think of the year of the woman in the, in the early nineties, after Anita Hill was destroyed on public television, more women ran uh, for local and, and federal government positions than any other time. And it led to laws passed that benefited men and women. I mean, it's just truly astounding what happens when you see women come to places of power, but you can also see and trace back between the printing press and dust revolution and just bad theology, how men gained power and they, it was the advan- the advantages of patriarchy are many legion yep. and the consequences in their mind are nothing. And so there's a couple things I want to do here. One is I just had a, I just had a, a, I wouldn't, I don't know if it was an argument, had a very, very, uh, uh, powerful discussion with someone recently about, uh, this idea of, you know, men in leadership in the home and in the church. And they talked about, they talked about the fact that they were, they believed that they, they believed that they believed the whole Bible. Like we are Bible people, whatever the Bible says goes. And then I said, that's not true because your wife has jewelry on right now. She's wearing makeup. And I've seen her in church before, and she was not wearing a head covering. I've also seen her speak in church. So you're cherry picking what you want to believe. You're not being wise. You're not being smart. You're not looking at context. And you're cherry picking what you believe. And we're all doing that. I'm not even saying you're the only one doing that. 
we all do it. Yeah. So that's one thing is like, is, is it's a, it's a bad misreading of the Bible on top of that. And I don't want to, there's no wrong answers here for this next question, but, and this is not the other big one that I want to get to, but this, this led into that from here. I, one of the, one of the healthiest things that's ever happened to my faith over the last few years. And I, people are sick of me talking about it on this show probably, but I'm, you know, I'm reluctantly hanging on as a Christian. I don't like to call myself a Christian because Christians are some of the most terrible people that I know. Uh, but I like Jesus a lot. I think Jesus is awesome. And I really am attracted to Jesus, right? As a figure in his, his teachings. But one of the healthiest things that I did in my life was to stop seeing the Bible as uh, the, the using the words that I grew up with, inerrant and infallible. Mm. So as my worldview expanded, and as I just got out there and started talking with people and, and you know, living outside the tentacles of evangelicalism, I don't know if I'll ever go back from questioning, like looking at the Bible, it's all written by men. Like literally, it's all men. And men decided to canonize, and a council of all men decided to canonize men only written books for this Bible. I refuse to believe that there were not women writing stuff down. Exactly. Things they had observed, things they were, you know, things they saw Jesus do things they were experiencing in the world. I refuse to believe that wasn't happening. They just decided to do that. So my view of the Bible now is very important book. Love to read it. Lots of wisdom in there. I learn a ton still, but I can't, because if I believe that that is the inerrant infallible word of God, then that God to me is not a very attractive God. Mm. That's my perspective. A God who only lets men speak on his, his behalf, speak on God's behalf, that it's all interpreted through the minds and the hearts of men, men that were not very good in a lot of ways, men that did a lot of harm and then wrote books about it. And they're in the canonized scriptures. So how do you, again, no wrong answers here. I'm still working through that in my life, but how do you, as you read the Bible and look at these, look, you read a Bible written by only men. Um, where a lot of abuse happened in that Bible and that Bible has, uh, and millions of men since the Bible was written have used the Bible as their standing for abusing other people, women and children in particular. How do you read the, how do you hold all of this intention in your own life? Oh, what a great question. I think first, um, the scripture in Galatians three, male or female slave or free. So when I see abuse of power and then in, in scripture, and then it be weaponized in our modern day um, by, again, abusers of power, I, I reject it 100%. I reject it wholeheartedly. And I'm also kind of like, how dare you? How dare you use this inspired word to harm and hurt? That's not the, that's not the message of Jesus. So what you kind of opened with this, and I, I, I have to 120% agree is, I go to Jesus. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you just spend some time with the character of Jesus and how he treated people, game over for me. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to hold something from the Old Testament or from a minor epistle or anything like that over the nature and character of Jesus, that you, we have to look. There is a supreme central point of this whole book and it points to Jesus. So if, we, if we're going to 
hold up something that doesn't match with the character of Jesus, it has no bearing and it has no place. And I think that's, um, I think that's the power of the spirit too, living in us to be able to discern and read. And I'm not saying that others who don't, uh, read what I read are, don't have the spirit, but I, I have to believe that my God is one of goodness and not harm one of acceptance and beauty and wholeness and majesty and not subjugation and hierarchy and patriarchy. And patriarchy has no roots in the gospel. None. We've added that. We have retroactively added that. And obviously we hear it from a John MacArthur and we hear it from a John Piper, a lot of Johns. Um, But we also hear it um, from ancient texts and especially the time of the Reformation of all these, you know, when you look at a, a bookcase of all your commentaries, how many of those are written by women? How many of those are written by women of color? Dear Lord, God forbid. And so mm-hmm. even the way we think about scripture, the way we even address context um, is usually through a male gaze, a white male gaze. So it's really stepping back and thinking who's missing from this story and being able to celebrate their stories, but also hold them up as leaders, not as just these sad stories of what happened to them in scripture. Yeah. We can't take their power. Yeah. We're getting closer to the book. I want to talk about what I've seen over the last few years as, so I don't have a fully formed idea and argument for this yet, but the the premise of what I'm about to say is the, the Christian, the ethic, the, the sexual ethic that most Christians, white Western Christians get from the Bible causes harm to women and children and creates this obsession. So what I'm getting at is this obsession with sex Mm -hmm. by Christians creates sexual assaulters, creates predators. And I don't know why I'm still figuring this out. So I'm I'm looking for your perspective. There, there, there is, there, there are uh, verses and passages and there is talk of sex and morality and, and I believe so many of them are taken out of context, but I know way more abusers and perverts that are Christian than I do that are not. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a lot of, there's less focus by Christians on, uh, immigrants, refugees, kindness, generosity, uh, 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 gluttony, all these other things that we could be talking about in life, providing for the needs of marginalized peoples, all these different conversations. There's so, I mean, if you go on Twitter, all these white evangelical men, some of that you just mentioned and, and many others that we could mention, they're just always talking about sex and mostly in particular, you know, LGBTQ, plus, you know, our friends in that category. And there's such an obsession with that and not in But, but again, here's what I'm getting at. Like the obsession with it actually creates, uh, perverts and abusers. That is what I'm working through right now and kind of seeing, and I don't get the obsession because there isn't, there's, there are things that are talked about way more in the Bible than sex. There's only a few passages that really address it. And yet it's all some people seem to talk about. And a lot of times those people that talk about it all the time are doing shit that's abhorrent and that they end up 
you know, losing their jobs and getting arrested. And it's a whole big thing. So what's going on there? And am I, am I tracking what it, do you, do you see a correlation there? Yeah. It's about power. Um, it, sex is so tied to power and it's interesting. You know, we are obsessed with sexual sin, but not sexual crimes, especially when they're happening mm. against women and children. Mm. And so we're, we're willing to reframe that this is again, a personal issue versus a societal issue, because that's something we feel like we can harness. Um, but this is really a conversation about power. Just as you said, you said the, these men who are so obsessed with it are also the ones doing vile deeds. And it, again, is there's, there's some control there and there's power and it's being able to take advantage of somebody who you can harm and you're convinced they can't do anything about it. Uh, so I think that we have to, you know, pull back the camera and look wide and see that sex has long been the most effective way to harm a woman, hmm. most effective yep. way to harm a woman. And it's an act of theft more than anything else. And so to take something from her that she did not willingly give or from children or from however, just as we're talking about this obsession with it, um, is it's, it is, it's evil. It's vile. It's violating. And to be able to realize that this isn't just like a, we, and, and honestly, we've just made it so dirty. We don't talk about it early enough. We don't destigmatize it. We're like, this is such a dark thing. And it's like, this is actually how we're, we, we, this is how we build the next generation. Like yep. it's really necessary. Yep. And so to, I think about um, in Texas, they have yep. the highest rate of teen pregnancy mm-hmm. and they are the state that uses abstinence only. Yep. education. Yep. So because we are not educating, because we, we just have mystified this issue, not just in faith culture, but in secular culture as well, we aren't having honest conversations about how bodies work. You know, I, mm-hmm. I grew up in the purity movement and got married. And then I'm like, I still was like, wait, so is there like a class I can do? I'm just being honest with you. We just have made 100%. it so untouchable yep. that we are raising people who are not whole beings and, and able to understand that their sexuality is connected to their heart and soul and spirit. These are not divorced issues. Um, and, and, and I, I think uh, just to bounce off of that, that's kind of where I was getting at was I too grew up in that, in that sort of, um, yeah. And that sort of way of thinking, like I, I, I hope this is not too crass, but it's just the, the reality of our conversation. Like I, found out about masturbation on accident at 15. Like it was never talked about. Nobody had the conversation. So like there, you know, I'm 15, things are happening. I'm like, what just happened? Right. What is going on? That should never be the case. And, but, 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 and I can also around that story, I can talk about all the things that I experimented with and looked after and went after because it was this like, it was this taboo thing that we don't talk about. And like you said, it's dirty and this and that, and what's that going to make? And that's why, that's why I was kind of getting after the, like, I, I know more perverts that are Christian than not. Now we can have conversations about, you know, you know, sex when and where, I mean, there's studies about, you know, monogamy and like having fewer partners. Like we can discuss all that all day long, but the healthiest people that I know are not the ones that got married at 20 so that they wouldn't have sex with each other first. Yeah. Many of them, I mean, I know a handful of friends of mine that are gay. They got married to a woman because that's the right thing to do. And they have families now. And some of them have 
come out of come out of that and they've you know they've they've spoken up about who they are and those families have figured that out but i know a couple that are still not that have not yet talked about it and that have never felt really attracted to their partner but they're doing the right thing air quotes right so we've made it this taboo thing people are not able to be themselves people are not able to uh um i mean we had conversations growing up that were like, if you, you know, again, sex was the biggest thing. It wasn't, right. you know, ignoring your neighbor. It wasn't not providing for the poor. It wasn't it was any of these don't other have things. It. <laughs> it was don't have sex. If you do, you're damned to hell. Like you, yeah. you like all your salvation curses. depends on keeping your legs closed. Curses, yeah. curses to come. And that's it. And when you do that, and, and now you have a bunch of young people, I think my generation, I'm not so young anymore, but like my generation of millennials, like you have people figuring out and finding out, oh wait, that wasn't true. Like, like, yes, again, we still have to figure out how to live, you know, rightly, but there, there wasn't death and destruction and mayhem if I made these mistakes. Right. So it's, it's, it's pretty wild. I want to, I want to cover two things here. First, the shame that is heaped on people that is so unnecessary and undue, just as you mentioned. In fact, studies show that those who grew up in the most intense um, streams of the purity movement, you know, they're wearing dresses and their, their, their bodies are dirty and dark and they, they can cause a man to stumble and they can lose everything. They were showing the same symptoms of post-traumatic stress induced by sexual abuse, even though they had never been sexually abused. Mm. They, they had the same symptoms of intense sexual abuse because of going through these just intense streams of the purity movement. So you just see these these, again, this control, it's controlling the body. It's controlling the narrative. And like your experience of not having any education or not talking through and not finding out like, oh wait, this isn't, I'm not bad. And what's happening to my body in these changes isn't bad. And I just have to say, Nick, I have a 10 year old preteen who is developed early. <laughs> so we're walking through this right now and having these conversations mm-hmm. before they happen. 100%. So he's not like, oh my God, what's happening right now? And I'm a girl. So it's a little like, okay, okay, strap up, let's do this. But, um, and I've but been, even, but even that, and that, and that's hard, but even that, like the fact that you are part of those conversations. So even when, even when those conversations eventually happened in my family, it was done like half-assed, like not all the information was there. It was after the fact, and it was only dad. Not to say that mom has to be in all of those conversations. Cause she doesn't but, want to, I can tell you firsthand, she, I don't want to be in all the conversations. But what if that actually helps disarm the whole situation yes. more again, makes your son not afraid to know what's going on and what's happening and, you know, what a period and how girls yeah. develop and all that stuff. Like, like we, you know, my, this is a super small example, but from the time our kids were, you know, when they were learning to talk, we never have used any other term besides penis and vagina. That's so important. I grew up in it, like literally the anatomical names for our private parts were not spoken as if it was a bad thing to say the word vagina and my, my, I won't say which relative, but one of the relatives that is really close to, you know, our kids spoke up and was like, why are you doing that? That's not okay. Like you should come up with some nickname for it. And we're like, please, like, first of all, step back. Second of all, that is what it's called. Yeah. My boy has a penis. My girls yeah. have vaginas. They need to know so that we can, uh, they can know how things are developing. They can know if they're being touched wrongly. They can yeah. know if they're being abused. If you start nicknaming everything and acting again, acting like there's something shameful about it, 
then they're going to get, they could potentially get into trouble later, it, whether the trouble is imposed on them or they're getting into trouble because they just don't know what the hell is happening. Absolutely. And studies confirm that. In fact, that they pulled kids who had nicknames for their genitalia versus kids who had the anatomical names and the rate of misinformation. And in fact, one little girl was sitting um, in her doctor's appointment, just an annual checkup with her mom, and they were just chatting. And, and eventually um, the little girl said, oh, Uncle Carl loves, loves my cookies. Mm. And the mom just froze because that's what their nickname was for private parts. And in front of this doctor, she's realizing my daughter has been sexually abused. And so it just points to ev everything you just said. In fact, I believe it's Sweden who they start sexual education. Again, not gross, not weird, not, not appropriate even diagrams of, of bodies and research and psychologists, child psychologists show that like a, not any sort of like sexualized image, but just like, oh, this is about, even if it's a drawing, right? This is a body. You know what? That's how we work. This is how we're made. This is to be celebrated. There's nothing weird or wrong. Um, it's so vital. And they have some of the lowest uh, teen pregnancy and abortion rates in the world. And they start that in kindergarten. That's so important. The other day, my wife told me, my wife last week had her period for the month. And she, my daughter knocked on the bathroom door when she was putting in her, her, uh, her cup. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, she like barged in on her and <laughs> Becky was like, okay, I could act all like, okay, get out. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing right. something right now. Or I could just show her what she's going to end up doing every single month for 40 in years, the next few years, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very <laughs> soon. And for decades yeah. after that. And so she stayed and, you know, kind of watched the whole process and asked a couple of questions and then it was over. But again, just like disarming the whole yep. situation. Disarming the, and often, right. Having conversations all the time. This isn't one conversation when they're 13, God forbid. And then if we're, if we're just shrouding in secrecy, these conversations, we're never going to have the conversation of how men are taking advantage of women or what does consent look like? Consent looks like if someone's darting their eyes and feeling uncomfortable, they don't want to talk to you and you don't get to take over their time and, and body and, you know, eye contact. And so we, it's not only just these body conversations, that's where we got to start, but then we're able to teach, Hey, what do, what do subtle cues look like when somebody's feeling uncomfortable? It's then we move into body awareness. I'm the boss of my body. There's so much more that goes into that equal understanding of men and women that starts so young, starts so young. Yeah. And I think most of all, like looking back on my experience, what I'm trying to change with my kids and hoping this conversation helps, you know, young people with young kids do is just take away the, the shame of talking about yeah. those things, because that would have saved me from a world of trouble. It would have yeah. saved my siblings from a world of trouble. And I think things that have happened consequently in life as a result of that trauma. And if we can just, if we can disarm the conversation and make it not shameful to talk about, not even, I'm not talking even about the abuse, like all things, sexuality, mm -hmm. we're, we'll be better off as a society because yeah. whether it's, whether it's, I don't know what's going on, or I have a, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and this is happening too. I've been abused. I've, I know I've been abused, but I know that if I come forward, I'm not going to be believed they're going to be believed automatically. There's going to be this whole big thing. I'm going to be shamed. It talk, we talked, I talked with Tina Chen from Time's Up a few weeks ago, and we talked about how, you know, women, so many women that come forward, their careers are ruined. Yeah. Like absolutely. they, they, they are unemployable and, or they have to choose an entirely different career path. The guy, maybe something happens, maybe doesn't, but the victim, 
the survivor in the whole situation gone, like no job anymore. It's yeah. not available for her. And I can safely say her because most of the time it is a she, even though it does happen the other way around as well. Okay. Let's get into your book. So what I'd love for you to do is over the next few minutes, I know there's some sensitivity around um, the stories that are interweaved throughout this book. And so I will let you lead this part of the conversation and just take us through the book. So the three parts are why we silence women who tell the truth. Part number two is how we silence these women. And part number three is then talking to allies. How can we speak up? So take us through the book, enough to tease everybody, but not enough that they won't go buy the book afterward because I want them to do that. Awesome. Uh, I will first say that we have got to realize that we are complicit in these systems. And 90% of us, this isn't going to happen to us. We are that bystander who has this ethical dilemma of like, should I say something or is this a not my circus, not my monkeys kind of situation? Mm -hmm. And the reality is whether you're a person of faith or not, it is your moral responsibility as a human being to say something if you see something. However large or small, maybe however you know, you must consider your proximity to power. If this person has been benevolent or kind to you, that doesn't give you a free pass to not say anything. Mm. So just, this, this book really is for those who realize I have a responsibility to half the world to stand up and ensure that we all live in equitable spaces. So that first section, why we silence women really kind of unpacks the cultural, spiritual, and societal narratives of why this even happens in the first place. And the second section, as you mentioned, talks about how we do it. You know, the how we do it with money, how we do it with shame, how we do it with the psychology behind how we can gaslight and manipulate women and how they start to believe a false narrative because they are so brainwashed and skewed and harmed that they'll take whatever scraps they can get to, to have a, a narrative where they aren't going to be harmed. And then lastly, it talks about it's an invitation to consider how we've been complicit, how we have actively or passively enabled, how we've used scripture to do so. And finally, how we can all be a part of serving as an ally. And I give popular modern historical examples as well as biblical examples of what allyship looks like. And it is not as, I do want to give one little, one little taste. It's not as crazy as we might seem. And mm. I think for men, and I'm sure you have plenty of male listeners, mm -hmm. we can sometimes get fall in two categories. Like, I'm just a total douche and such a bro, or yep. I am on the pedestal effect. Women think I'm awesome. I'm for them. I'm, I'm marching with them. I'm doing all the things and they're kind of put on that pedestal and they actually don't have to do much because the bar is so low. <laughs> but in reality, we are looking for partnership that requires a lament to truly grieve what's happened. We're looking for us, everyone to listen because we're so quick to judge. What we do, Nick, is we hold how we would respond to a situation over how someone actually responded to a situation. Mm. We are convinced we'd stay in our right mind. We would handle it so perfectly that no one would be harmed because it's a form of self-preservation. So to really listen without judgment, because the one-two punch of this issue is first, a woman is taken advantage of. And secondly, the system around her, when she finally does speak up, will shame her, make her unemployable. The list goes on. We'll ban her from the church, you know, fill in the blank. So to really listen and withhold judgment, to learn how these things happen, and honestly, to know that love and justice are on the same side of the coin, especially in faith circles, we love to divorce love and justice that, you know, you just need to forgive. You just need to move on. You just need to love him. And we won't seek justice because that is, that looks like betrayal. That looks like you can't get over it. In reality, justice is justice for all. 
not just justice for some. And I believe it was Cornell West who said, uh, love in public is justice. So yep. really to walk that justice out. Yeah, you have this, uh, you quoted Toronto Burke in the book, sexual violence knows no race, class or gender, but the response to sexual violence does. Until we change that, any advance that we make in addressing this issue is going to be scarred by the fact that it wasn't across the board. And that is, that's, I think that is an important part of this conversation is that yes, sexual violence knows no race, class or gender. It's all over the place, but there are clear indications that women, children, black and brown women and children are uh, not believed most of the time. And we have to, we have to do the hard work. And I think that's where I want to spend a few minutes on the last section of the book, the ally, you know, making allies. I want to dig more into the wisdom there because there are so many people who, I don't even know how this is going to come out, but I want to ask your perspective on this. Um, I know how I've responded to it. There are, um, Beth Moore tweeted something the other day and I responded to it saying, I've been, I have worked with many women publicly, privately. I've had many private meetings, private lunches. I've had to travel overseas with women. I've done all these things with women and I've never been in a compromising situation. No one's ever accused me of anything. There's so, there's so much that, but, but so many people, so many men, specifically white Christian men, they have this Billy Graham rule, you know, Mike Pence always talked about it, never in a room with a woman that doesn't prevent people that again, that goes back to the, how I grew up where it was like, everything's so taboo that you end up like doing something stupid, right? Like, yeah, it's so taboo and so off limits that it, it, it it builds up the pressure and actually makes the situation way more sexual and it shouldn't be sexual. Like I'm working with this person, they're a friend their partner in crime on this project or this thing that I'm doing. There's never, and there's no, there's never ever been anything that's happened in my, in my 20 something years of, of my career so far that has made anyone think to the, to, to my knowledge anyway, that there was anything going on there besides what we were doing. Right. Yeah, and I, and I'm a, and I'm a, you know, I hope people don't hear this wrong. I'm a touchy feely guy. I hug, like I'm a very affectionate person. And again, even in that, there's never been that. And so I want to help people realize as they become allies that it doesn't mean becoming a bunch of like Billy Graham rule followers. It doesn't mean, you know, taking more steps to like cut off, you know, uh, contact and even touch between these people. I think we actually need to disarm it. I think, you know, we need to see more, uh, you know, for the sake of my example, like a married man and a married woman being actual friends together and doing stuff that in, in therefore taking away the tabooness of it and taking away the, Oh, you can't do that. That's terrible. Look at this. Look at, look at this situation. Look at that situation. I'm like, well, that wasn't because a guy and a girl were hanging out. That was, there's way more going on there. Yeah. There's way yeah. more at play there than it was a man and a woman you know, and they couldn't control themselves <laughs> and they couldn't control themselves. Right. Like it makes women seem so helpless and they're not, yep. and it makes men seem like uncontrollable, uncontrollable. And yeah. there are so many men that can control themselves. Like it's so easy to control yourself. <laughs> I don't see the people that I partner with as sex objects. Therefore there's no intention to have sex with them right. or make any sexual advances. Yep. They're another person that I like and that we're doing a project together, right? So mm-hmm. 
how do we, let's talk about being an ally, what it means and what it doesn't mean, because what I don't want to create, especially since a lot of the people listening are uh, people of faith, recovering people of faith, deconstructing, reconstructing, and all you know, in all uh, uh, phases of the process, I don't want to create people that pull back even more. I want to see more health and I want to see more boldness from people to call shit out when they see it and not for people to become, not for there to be fewer male, female friendships. Right. 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 So I first want to just say, I saw the funniest tweet on this issue and it said, if you have to live by the Billy Graham rule and if you can't be alone in a room with a woman as a pastor, you might want to find a different job. You might not be cut out if you can't control yourself. I need, to, I need to go get a job at the McDonald's or something. Um, so I first want to say we have to address the stereotypes that men are uncontrollable. And again, we weaponize scripture to uphold that faulty theology that men can't control. And this is how they're built and they're lusty and they just want women all the time or they want to have sex all the time. And that women should just stay clear. It's the, the onus is on them to, again, a, avoid mm-hmm. abuse of power more than it is on men to behave appropriately and justly. Yeah. So I think we first have to ask men and women to uh, uh, behave justly. But mm-hmm. Everyone should be behaving justly and honoring. And again, because if we have been separated for so long, we, we do, we sexualize the other person that they're this and I can't control it and this is who I am. So being able to address stereotypes and faulty theology is the first two steps that we must use. And I think second, I want to speak to the Billy Graham rule because it is a form of subjugation. It mm-hmm. is keeping women out of, of rooms that they could help make decisions. It's keeping 100%. them out of decision-making rooms. It's keeping them out of boardrooms. It's keeping them out of prayer rooms. It's keeping them off the golf course because they wouldn't have a woman come to those kinds of things. Men's clubs, all of those things have really set women's empowerment and gender equality back years upon years upon years, when we don't allow women to be in those spaces and to have a lunch meeting and to to work with the opposite sex, we really are, we're making a woman's world really small. And that's pathetic. We're yeah. saying a woman can't advance in the world because a man can't control himself. Yep. Like that's ridiculous. Uh, really. So we have to be able to see how this is harming women. And then as we invite women, we're not inviting one woman into the story, are we? We're inviting all women. We're inviting partnership to work together. Not that women would lord over men or seek to oppress them in any way, shape, or form. And not that men would be over women. We have to be able to look at the fall and think like, this was the example of what can happen when everything goes to hell, not the example of how it should be. So I think as we talk about allyship, we have to move past this pedestal of like, you were kind to a woman and you let a woman teach or preach or come into the boardroom and give a presentation on the the next quarter's finances. Like we have to be able to see that it's more than just that. It is truly sitting at the feet of women and asking, hey, how, how am I perceived? Being willing to hear that. We got to address some male fragility. I have a whole section on male fragility here, but being able to, how, how am I perceived? You can be honest with me. Uh, how, what, what needs aren't being met in this institution or in this system that we operate in together? What, where do you see blind spots and being willing to hear their answers and then to take those answers and not just let them mold, but to take them and employ them into how you operate personally and operate in the system. If you work at a, at a company or in education, business, politics, entertainment, the church, wherever your case may be, or if you're a solopreneur, <laughs> like you or I, you know, being able to yep. see how do I come across to women? Am I, there's one thing to be huggy and touchy feely. And there's one thing to constantly comment and constantly say, oh, yeah. 
to where she feels like if I speak up, I'm going to lose my access to whatever compensation or ad- opportunity that we have together. So being aware of how you might demonstratively come across to women. And honestly, this goes into a conversation of chivalry versus kindness. Mm. Chivalry still says it's benevolent sexism, right? It still says, yep. you know, I am, I'm in charge and I'm opening the door and I'm ordering dinner for your benefit. Yep. And it's still sexism. So being able to be like, you know, chivalry is great. Kindness is better. I'm opening your door because you're an awesome person. And you're a human being with breath in your lungs. And I want to open your door for you. And I want to grab lunch today. Maybe you'll grab it next time. It's fine. If Or if I'm just grabbing it, that's just cool. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything from that exchange. So creating more spaces. And I think I'm going to just take it one step further on the allyship for men is mentorship. In my own life, and I'm pretty sure I said this, but the majority of men who have formed and shaped and given me opportunity, majority of those mentors were men. And they weren't ones who took advantage of me or exploited my loyalty. So having men open doors for women, if they have an opportunity that comes their way and they're like, this is great. What women in my world would really benefit from this? How could I sacrifice my space in the system to advance a woman's? If we really want to see, this isn't a one-sided issue. If only women address this, we are never going to get to where we need to be. This is about partnership. This is about equality. This is about reciprocity. So truly men saying, listening, Hey, how do I come across? What can you, can you, I'm, I'm ready to hear that. Where do women hit a ceiling in this place and space? And how can we creatively together get some opportunities and resources and solutions to fix this? I agree with all of that. And I also want to say that I think this is the, I feel very hopeful, even though these conversations are hard to have and it's still happening everywhere you look. I'm more hopeful than ever that this generation is the one that is going to not, you know, no, none of these issues are going to completely, you know, go away in our lifetimes, but this generation of any generation in the history of humanity can crush this, Come on, can expose the predators, can expose the abusers and can, um, I heard this the other day, somebody, you know, when, you know, this past summer with, or last summer with the whole black lives matter you know, movement kind of surging to heights that it's never seen before. There were a lot of conversations around like, we need to make more spaces at the table for people of color. And the very wise retort to that was, well, you're still controlling who's at the table. Sure. You opened up three seats for black and brown people and maybe some black and brown women, but you're still controlling who's at the seat. Like we've got to get to the point where they're, they're inviting you to the table. That's, that's, that's reality. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I'm sure some of your, a lot of obviously my listeners will be listening to this conversation. Some of your, you know, friends and listeners might be listening as well right now. So I might get into trouble here, but one of the saddest days as a parent of two daughters was the morning Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton, not popular vote. Let's just be clear on that. More people voted for her, but we can talk. We can have conversations about the, the, the reasons that some people, if they're legitimate, I'll have a conversation on the reasons that people have problems with Hillary Clinton. I admire the hell out of that woman. And I was really looking forward to a woman being president, right? So the, my kids were born, all three of them were born under the first black president. And I was really hoping for not another old white guy to be president and for a woman to be leading. And I can say with, I mean, I would, I would, I would bet the farm 
that we would be in a different place societally, culturally right now if she was president for the last four years, even if Biden was the next pick, right? We would be in a totally different place as a society, culturally, all the divisiveness, everything that's going on right now that we're, that we're battling through, the response that our country led by Donald Trump you know, went through this pandemic, like all of that, we'd be in a totally different place. And again, I think that goes back to, okay, cool. I, I like the sentiment. I like the initial sentiment behind let's, you know, we need, we need to invite them to the table more, whether it's women or people, brown and black and brown people. Um, but again, you're still controlling the table. And I look forward to a future where many of the tables are controlled by women and BIPOC people. And like, that's the reality that I want to get to. That's the world that I want my kids to be growing up in, both in the church and outside the church, right? Whether it's, whether you're a fortune 100 company or a small little, you know, parish in a neighborhood somewhere, right? Like that has to be the reality where it's not still not a, a, a white man opening up spots at the table for women and people of color. Like that has to go away. Not entirely. Cause if, if a white man is the right leader for X, Y, and Z project company or church, great. But that has to stop being the norm. And that is the norm right now. Look at all the CEOs and look at all the, the church leaders. It's mostly, I tweeted something that got me um, quite a bit of feedback uh, from. So I tweeted that, I tweeted multiple times in the last couple of months, some version of white evangelical men are the most fragile people that I know. And I can back that up with a ton of data. I mean, I can, give you, I can give you story after story. <laughs> and do you want to know a hundred percent of the pushback that I got? Guess who it was from? It was women. No, it was from white evangelical men not liking the idea that I was calling that out. Like no, no people of color push back. No women push back on that. Right. It was, and they were proving my point. For sure. By, yeah. By I mean, a, really, you said a trap and they fell for it. <laughs> they fell for it. And, but, but I believe that's a reality. And I say that as a, I I'm the son of an immigrant. I'm, I'm Latino, but I have pretty fair skin. So I say that as a practically white man, right. That that needs to change. We need yeah. to see that change. And when we see that change, when more women are running companies and when more women are leading in churches in all kinds of faith circles, we are going to see uh, massive amounts of societal, political, cultural change. It's going to be beautiful. It's what yeah. we've been waiting for. And I think just as you said, in this generation, I often say when I speak to women, we're the women we've been waiting for. Yeah. Our mothers and our grandmothers and our great grandmothers have done a beautiful work. And now we stand on their shoulders and we keep this ball moving. They didn't sacrifice for nothing. And <laughs> history is depending on us. History is depending on us to play our role in part. One of the hard things is that history moves. One of the hard things for me as an Enneagram eight, as a double, triple extrovert, as someone who always wants to see stuff moving forward is that and this is something I have to get used to, right? Like it's just part of reality is that things move slowly, right? These are structures that have been around for thousands of years. So they're not going to change overnight and it's going to take time. It's yeah. going to take a lot of time and patience and a pain for a lot of people. And it's, it's expensive and it's time consuming. And we're going to see in the process, we're going to see lots of many more women, children, people of color, not believed when they come right. forward. Right. And that's right. the hard part of this is that I feel simultaneously hopeful that this is the generation that's going to knock all those structures down. 
but we're still seeing in real time right now, you know, whether it's Ravi Zacharias and, you know, my friend Lori there, who's still in an NDA and can't speak openly still to this day about what's wow. going on. Um, we've seen it all over the place, the, yeah. whether it's Carl Lentz or Ravi Zacharias, or we could just name yep. all the people that are, that were in positions of power and that use that power, use their, their charm and their, I mean, obviously Ravi is not a white man, but he used his power for sure. Yeah. And all the, 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 uh, the applause and hoopla around who he was to hurt women for years and years and years. And I can't imagine that there was nobody that noticed it. There were lots of people that noticed it, but they excused it. They looked the other way because it's Ravi, because it's Carl, because it's Harvey, because it's, you know, just we can go on down the line. Um, I hope to see that change. I really, really You know, it's interesting. Research shows that the more a man has access to unchecked power, the more likely he is to see himself as sexually desirable and will seek out sexual affairs and not always, you know, consensual. So we have a clear understanding of how this happens. Men truly believe that unchecked power means that they're invincible. They're immune to dissent. And so if accountability and women in power, equal power, not one performative woman in power, is what it takes to address hierarchical situations where men are just taking advantage of women left and right, then we we have the formula for success. Just as you said, it's easy, but it's hard and it takes time, but we can do it. It's doable. It's doable. Yeah. And I, that's a, that's a great point. I was thinking about this the other day. You probably saw this video that went viral of this pastor. I think he was in Wisconsin. That oh, yeah, I wrote, I wrote an article yeah. about it. Yeah. So Missouri, right? The, Missouri, he said women right. should be hot. Yep. 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 You know, the Trump or Melania Trump, the trophy wife, right? Yeah. So I'm not, I don't want to shame anybody in this. That's not my point. But if you look at a lot of these people that end up being predators and that end up saying just this, the dumbest shit ever about these topics, right? They are not they're not physically attractive, right? You look at, I mean, you look at- It has Harvey nothing Weiss. to do with physicality, yeah. It has to, do, right. So you look at Harvey, it's you look at power. Robbie, you look at this pastor, he's up there telling all these women to like get in shape and you should- and like he's Melania, his iPad on his belly. Literally, I mean, the guy's, he's obese and he's not an attractive person. So somehow he looked in the mirror yes. and saw himself as like, maybe not like, you know, Prince Charming, but definitely like I- I'm an ob- I, I should be an object of your affection, ladies. And, and, and I, I deserve it, whether you want it or not. 100%. You could tell, yeah, that whole monologue that he gave, I won't even call it a sermon because that's, that's the last thing that it was. There was no scripture involved at all. That whole monologue that he gave was just dripping with misogyny. privilege and you owe <laughs> yeah. me and misogyny. And it was just terrible, yeah. but that's just happening way too much and it needs to change. Yeah. And but it's interesting. Go ahead. Oh, go on. It's interesting because he's up there giving this message that women need to be hot. There's a weight limit before divorce, all of this stuff. Yet, we, and, and our goal as young women is to up, up, you know, move up toward that hot wife status, but we're told not to appear sexy and we're told not to appear lusty and we're told to be very aware of our voice and how we carry ourselves. It's like, well, which is it? which is it? You know, there's just, there's a really dissonant messaging going on. Kind of full circle with the obsession with sex. Right. And I think the, the, the terrible sexual ethic that people grab from, again, some of it, I think can be actually pointing back to scripture, but it's also, there's a lot of distorted views coming out of that is that, um, yeah, it's multiple, it's, it's terrible messaging. Right. So on the one hand, it's cover yourselves up. Don't like guys lust. So don't wear anything like that. But then you have 
that same guy that's probably you know pro-life and pro-Trump and pro all these things, uh, there's no way he hasn't lusted after you know Melania Trump and like think she's you know everything. Like you have millions of Christians. And when I, I would guess that out of the 73 million people that re-voted for Trump the second time, right, 50 million of them, 60 million were evangelical Christians that are somehow in their pure, their like hyper purity ethic that they carry, they were also totally fine with grabbing by the pussy and with 20 rape allegations and with the fact that I don't want to shame Melania for anything she's done in her past. That's her life. But like, like she also was very open with who she was yeah. and, you know, me, many people have seen her entire body, right? Yes. All, and, you know, and other things, the many other things that Trump has done, like bragging about walking in on underage girls at his pageant, like all the things that he's done, it's inconsistent and it's bullshit and it's terrible and it's harmful and it continues to allow space for abusers and perverts yep. and uh, misogynists to not just status quo, but like flourish. Cause yeah. if, cause if Trump can become the president of the United States, wow. then anybody can do anything, right? That's right. Like any guy can that do anything. That was the message we got. Absolutely. And that's the message and harmful message that women got is you can get away with anything yeah. and there will be no consequences. And then let's hold that experience up of you can get elected to the highest office in the land, leader of the free world, with Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford, when a, a document was leaked, and so she was forced to come forward and does and still has private security detail to this day for fear of her livelihood because she spoke up and mm -hmm. told the truth. So you just, you see how much a woman will pay and how little a man will. In fact, he'll be applauded. He will be applauded. What is it? For every thousand rapes, 384 reported the police, 57 arrests, 11 prosecuted seven felony convictions, six incarcerations. So for every thousand rape al allegations, six will end up in prison for it. Why would you speak up? Right. Why would you go through that? Why would you go through that oncoming forthcoming hell when there's a very, very slim to none chance that this abuser will ever get punished for it? Exactly. We've got to, we've got to flip this upside down. What else? Are, so with this book, uh, fantastic book, what else are you what are you looking forward? It's not out yet. It'll be out the day, I think the day that this comes out, right? March 16, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the day that everybody's listening to this, the book is out. What else are you doing to share this message and these ideas? Uh, yeah. And then kind of, well, go ahead. I, you know, this isn't a moment, it's a movement. This yeah. takes all of us to make change. So my hope is to, you know, in the time of COVID, it's not always easy, but to continually yeah. find spaces, especially college campuses, since they're ripe for scandal. Um, and boys yeah. get away with so much and they take that fraternity culture into adult life. So I feel like that's a really great time to address these issues, but then also to faith spaces and invite, you know, organizations, businesses to audit, have an audit, have an honest conversation of how do women feel in this space? Cause you probably feel like they're great and mm. they feel like they're drowning. Mm. And that when that, when they do hit that glass ceiling, and if they ever do get through it, the shards of glass that end up in their mouth are not ones they can choke down. So I want to continue this conversation in various spaces that will benefit. And then I've got other dreams too. I'd love to turn this into a documentary. I've, many of the, the women I've reached out to, um, Weinstein uh, victims have reached out to me. Um, other victims have reached out to me. And so I'm, I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming. Well, I hope all those dreams come true because you're a, you're a great uh, person to be leading the, these sorts of conversations, especially within the faith circle, which is just not happening enough. There's 
I mean, there's so many people outside the faith circles that are having these conversations, but it needs to happen way more inside of faith circles. Um, So we've talked mostly about you authoring this one book, but you do so much more. So why don't you give people, as we begin to wrap up here, what else are you in, like, what else do you want people to go uh, pay attention to and look at that you're doing or that you plan to do outside of this book, Pray Tell? Yes. I wear a few different hats. I'm the co-host of the Why Though podcast with fellow author Ashley Abercrombie. We are going on about three-ish years right now, and we answer the existential questions we all ask ourselves. We address systemic injustice and also our favorite frozen pizzas, <laughs> and that's a weekly podcast. And then also, I write for the YouVersion Bible app. Love, love, love to be able mm. to provide content that is different and from a woman of color and as an immigrant and how I see scripture um, and provide that to millions of people. So that has been a joy. And I love to write, always dreaming about the next book. And I'm a mom. I've got two kids who uh, take a lot out of me. So that's that. And then, of course, speaking, which is now, you know, digital keynotes, but speaking nonetheless. Real quickly, your family. So you were, let's just talk about your family real quickly, as much as you, as much as little as you want to tell. But I know that you've had an interesting, you and your husband, Derek, have had an interesting, it's been a journey growing your family, right? So you were abandoned at, abandoned when you were younger and adopted real quickly, just like, um, talk about your family. Cause again, I have not spent time with you all in person in the last few years, but yeah. again, it's been beautiful to see that sort of grow and evolve. And again, it's been, there's been, there's been uh, joy and struggles all along yeah. in, in your family. So give us a picture into what Absolutely. your family looks like. And so my oldest is adopted from Uganda and we adopted him just about two years old. And there's been a lot of trauma, neurological delays and different things to deal with. And it's, it's full court press, uh, just to be completely honest mm. with you. Um, it's a lot. It's when you, I mean, I know that you've, you are very familiar with the adoption world. Mm -hmm. Um, it is not for the faint of heart and it is beautiful and it is whole. And I am very much for family reunification at all possible. Um, but after that, when a child is institutionalized, that is not good for their heart, their brain, their body, Mm -hmm. their mind. And so being in a family and one of the things I always remind myself is that the, the brain is plastic. It heals, it heals. And I have a, one of my friends, um, she's a psychologist and she just reminded me the other day, the other day, like it's in our DNA to heal. It's Mm. in our DNA to heal. Um, so just encouraged by that. My youngest is straight out the shoe. And I just have to say, Nick, as somebody who knows no living family member to meet my first one that I share DNA with was holy in a way that is not of this earth. It's not of this world. And I'm like, this is what people feel all the time. You know, (laughs) like what your DNA in another human, even, a just how much genetics are at play, watching the differences and seeing how um, my biological son has my mannerisms. I'm like, what the what? Like, it's just wild as as somebody who's, again, never met a family member. So that's been a really, really uh, beautiful thing. It is, it is, we are made up of vagabonds over here and Mm. we believe in goodness and wholeness and love and love makes a family, not blood. And uh, we're, we're doing our best. We're a little United Nations. I love it. I love it. Well, I I do love your family. Tiffany, you're amazing. Thank you for spending some time with us today for sharing about your book. I hope many of the people listening will buy it and read it. They'll follow the work that you're doing. We'll have all the links in the show notes. And um, this was super fun. Uh, Thank you, Nick. Bless you, brother. Dear friends, thank you so much for spending time with Tiffany and me today. Buy her books and go follow her on Instagram at Tiffany Bloom. Visit her website to learn more about what she's doing and making 
at tiffanybloom.com. And please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about who we are and what we're doing and what we're building here at Let's Give a Damn. Thank you for showing up today. I'm so incredibly grateful that you show up to hear me talk with my friends and strangers alike. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Love you all. Be safe, keep giving a damn, and bye for now.